Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's good to be here together worshiping the Lord. Amen. Well, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity that we can gather together as a body of believers to honor you and worship you and glorify you. And Lord, truly, that is our desire to magnify your name to know you more. And Lord, that's our desire tonight, to know what your will is for us and how, Lord, we can honor you and please you in the things we do and the things we say. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. That's chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Now, I've titled it uh, The Shaping of a, a Disciple. What I mean by that is, is Jesus takes his disciples and he shapes them. He conforms them to his image. He has to prepare them for service. First, he has to cleanse them and then fill them. Lord, to teach them to walk in the Spirit, to trust Him completely. What Jesus is doing is, is gathering, in a sense, some would say, a, a team around Him. A team that's ready to minister. And tonight, that's what He's doing in you, in me, every time we get in the Word. He's washing our minds, our thoughts. He's, he's cleansing us. He's equipping us. And the more than... You and I hear the Word of God, the more the Holy Spirit can work in us and through us. We're going to begin with really the, the call of a, a disciple or the disciple's call. And I'm looking at the book of Matthew uh, in this way that it, it's really a book of discipleship. It presents Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. There's not a question about that. It presents him again the... He has the genealogy of the king, the birth of the king, the baptism of the king, the temptation of the king. We saw the words of the king, and we've been looking at the, the power of the king. But here in the middle, again, Jesus pauses from time to time to equip and train his disciples. I know it's your desire that you want to glorify God. I know it's your desire. You want to be used by him. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in the word. You wouldn't be seeking after him. Well, it's in verse 9 of our text tonight. It begins this way. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, the person that would first read this and not know really the other Gospels or not think too much about, you know, all the different things that happened, they would say, wow, he heard it once, follow me, and he, he came. In some ways it is like that. But Matthew, remember, in this city, on the edge of the city, a, a Capernaum, a tax collector, would have heard everything that Jesus was doing. He would have heard the talk about Jesus. There were crowds from 4,000, maybe 12 to 15,000 people. There were people being healed, blind people seen. 
the lame were walking. And it goes on with a list of things. John talks about that Jesus did so many miracles. There's not even enough books in the world to record what he did. So Matthew would have heard. Perhaps even Matthew had seen. Perhaps even Matthew had a chance to hear maybe Jesus speak, the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know. But just like you and me, there's a period of time before we come to the Lord that that people were sharing the gospel, speaking to us. We were hearing about Jesus. We're hearing about what God had done. And then one day, whether it be in a church service or at home or in our car, wherever, we have to make that decision. We hear that call. Will we believe in him and trust in him? Will we follow him? Because that's what a disciple is, one who follows. Follows Jesus in this context. Wants to be like Jesus. Not meaning God, but want to walk in holiness. He recognizes that he needs to change his lifestyle. And so this is what Matthew does. Matthew responds. He's sitting there and he, he, he just leaves. So again, Matthew showed Jesus is, is violating first what I want to call your attention to the cultural taboo of associating with a, a tax collector. See, tax collectors were vile sinners. And yet Jesus invited this tax collector to become one of his closest friends. But I love it. Because there's no one beyond the grace of God. The call goes out. Each person has to make that decision. Will they follow when he calls? So Matthew's conscience must have been in torment, let's say. For to accept the master's invitation, he had to have this spiritual cleaning. There needed to be this restoration. He needed to know whether he was going to be accepted because he was an outcast. He had to be willing to give up his wealth and his privilege and position because he's no longer going to be a, a tax collector. He left his position. Matthew was willing, as the scripture says, to put his hand to the plow and not turn back. He valued the life the life with the Messiah. And this is what he comes to know. There's something else that I want to call your attention to while we're here is we see Matthew's own humility. What do you mean by that? Matthew 18, verse 2 and 5 says this, And he called a child to himself, referring to Jesus, and set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you're Converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one of these child in my name receives him. Well, Matthew needed to humble himself. He couldn't save himself. All the money he had, and he was very wealthy, could not buy salvation for him. It's interesting because we're going to see that Matthew uh, had this name, which meant gift of Yahweh. Wait a second. He's a gift of Yahweh or a, a gift of God? Certainly doesn't sound like it, doesn't look like it to the, the Jewish people. 
It's interesting when you stop and think about the Jewish people at that time, uh, they would have two or three names. Certainly there was the name in their genealogy that was given to them. But it's very possible that Matthew was a, a nickname because we know in Mark and in Luke, he's recorded his name as, as Levi, speaking about the tribe that he came from. But what's interesting is maybe this name was given to him by Jesus, and yet we don't have all the information. And the reason I make this suggestion, if you look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, perhaps you remember this story. Again, when Jesus and his disciples are up in the area of Dan, Caesarea Philippi, and is there in Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus said to him, speaking to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bojona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower. Now, Peter recognized Jesus as the Messiah. He said, who do people say I am? And, and they give different explanations. But Jesus said, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after that moment, Jesus gives him this new name because of the new work that he's going to do in him. See, perhaps this is what he did to Matthew, as a gift of God, a gift of Yahweh, because he was going to bring the truth. He would write the truth, the truth that would set people free. Now, the Jews, most likely, as I already explained, considered Matthew as a traitor. And the reason for this is because he was collecting taxes, he entailed uh, working with the corporation of the Roman occupiers. This kind of thing was just irritated them. He was considered a traitor. How could he do this? But Jesus called him. And I love that. Because wherever God has called you in, whatever trade, Whatever abilities and gifting that God has given you, you will use those for the glory of God unless you choose not to. God prepares a person for that. Matthew now was called to become a, a personal attendant of Jesus. And this was preparing him to be the, the apostle, one of those apostles that he would send out, giving special spiritual gifts showing that he was sent by the Messiah. Again, in Matthew 4, verse 18 and 22, I want to call your attention to something. Now, as Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, he saw two of the brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, and they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Matthew, as he was called in his work, he would use that for the glory of God. 
we see these two disciples as fishermen. Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishermen of men. We see that they left their nets and followed him. Then we see that there's, as you continue in that text, you can look at it later, that there's two other brothers. And we don't see all the disciples there, but, but these disciples, also fishermen, they're mending their nets. They would become fishers of men, but they'd also mend the lives of people. And again, whatever God has called you, whatever work you're doing, he will use those things for the glory of God unless you say, no, Lord. The choice is yours. Now, it's interesting when you stop and think about it in Mark 3, 13 through 19, and it says, and he went up the mountain and I love this, this is referring to Jesus and summoned or called those he himself wanted and they came to him. Jesus calls disciples just like Matthew because he wants them to be with them. He desires that relationship with you. He desires to, to prepare you, equip you and then send you into ministry. Sometimes he uses people very subtly and they don't even know it, which is a wonderful thing because then it doesn't go to our head and God gets the glory. Sometimes there's a person that just plods on one foot in front of them, just loving the Lord, loving the people, just doing the little thing, gift helps picking up this little thing, doing this little thing, and such an encouragement to someone else. Or visiting someone at a hospital. I've known people in the past that whenever someone's there, they're there, they're sitting at their bed, they're praying with them, they're reading scripture. And God calls them. He calls them personally, individually, because he desires the want to be with them, but he wants to give them meaning and purpose to their lives. 1 Peter 2, 21 says this, for you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example for you to follow in his steps. So the disciple follows in his steps. Christ is our example. So he gives us a purpose to follow him, to minister for him. Romans chapter 1, Paul's talking here. This is Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. First of all, you and I are set apart to God. That's what makes us saints, that, that our lives are no longer set apart for this world, but set apart to God. And as a believer, disciple, we're set apart to, to bring the gospel to the lost, to share the good news of who Jesus Christ is. Paul speaking again in 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, this, fight the good fight of faith. Take a hold of eternal life, which you were called. You were made the made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So every disciple, that's the one that's called by God, that is following him, the disciple continues in the word of God, walking it out of his life. There's a spiritual fight. And we fight this good fight of faith. The enemy will attack you. The world will condemn you at times. But the disciple, the one that's called, understands this. He's put his hand to the plow just as Matthew did. He takes a hold of this eternal life. 
He knows where he's going. He knows, or she knows, when they close their eyes in this world, they will open their eyes up to the king and they'll hear those words, good and faithful servant. Now, no matter what's going on in your life, the Lord has assured his believers that he's on the throne. You know the passage well in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 30, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love God and those are called according to his purpose. He's called you, you're set apart, you have a purpose. God's going to use everything, good and bad in your life, to accomplish his purpose. It continues in verse 29, for those he foreknew, that's you and me, he also predestined to become conformed to the image and likeness of his son. One day he'll finish the work in us. We will be like him in holiness and purity and kind and caring and loving as, as he loves. So again, he goes on so that he would be the firstborn among the brethren and these whom he predestined, that's us again, he also called, and those he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he will be glorified. So he's called us. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. He sees us just as we've never sinned. We're justified. And one day, the work will be done, and you and I will be glorified in his presence. One of the things I love is, is Jesus takes the worst of sinners and turns them into disciples, true disciples. And the reason I say true disciples is because we're going to see that many disciples will follow Jesus, but some will walk away. Some have likened these to apostates. They, they understand what he said, but they won't accept it, and they leave the true oh, disciple continues in his word. Jesus says, you're truly my disciples if you continue in my word. Well, again, let's move to the verse 10. We see the crowd. It says, then it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table of the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were dining with Jesus and the disciples. I love the picture here. Matthew's called he knows who Jesus is. And immediately he calls all of his friends, all of his tax collectors, all the sinners. Sometimes sinners are just called Gentiles. Sometimes they could be immoral people. Either way, Matthew wants to tell people, introduce them to who Jesus is. This is Jesus, the King of Kings. He has had a, a again, a, a life-changing decision and experience because he's left this unethical, materialistic business, but he chooses now to share with all of those that he knew and he wants them to know who Jesus is. And Luke mentions it was a great crowd at his house, indicating he was a, a very wealthy man. Now, what's important to understand that, again, 
Jewish people would not eat with either Gentiles. They would not eat with tax collectors. Now, eating meals together was, was considered a, a religious matter. It was that of intimacy. So the righteous Jew, he enacted many regulations to prevent themselves from ever being ceremonially defiled. See, it was not done to really exclude people, but it was really to show a a commitment to the law. See, the Pharisees were more concerned about what people saw and thought than really the heart. Peter will learn this lesson later on in the book of Acts. Now, the life of disciples is one who follows Christ. And here Jesus is sitting right in the middle of the group of sinners. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. See, Matthew knew something had happened. His thinking had changed. His hopes changed. His future had changed. He simply left his life behind and invites Jesus, shocking the religious leaders. They don't know what to do. But see, Jesus, he, he says, I am the light, the light unto the world. And this person that follows him does not walk in darkness, but in the light of life. And this is what Matthew is doing. This is what the disciple does. We were in darkness, but now we're in light. We walk in the light, no longer in darkness. In John eight twelve, it says this, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life in him. That means when we walk, we walk in that truth, but we walk in such a way that we have life in us. We have hope in us. We have a a future in us, something beyond this life. No matter how bad it can be, we know that the best is yet to come. See, one of the things the disciple does is is bring people to Jesus. He brings Jesus right into the midst of his friends. He tells them what he has done for his life. In verse 11, what we see is really the critics here. When the Pharisees saw this, that is Jesus, in the midst of all these sinners, he said to the disciples, Why did your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You probably know people. They walk in a room and immediately they walk in the room. They're they're looking for something wrong, something negative, something to complain about. Pharisees say, okay, do you eat with this low life? It was a perfect opportunity for them to, to find fault. Again, the Pharisees are more concerned about their own appearance. That is, of of holiness than helping people. They're they're full of criticism instead of encouragement. They focused on their outward respectability than a practical help. 
Jesus taught in Matthew 7, verse 1 through 5, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take a speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. See, the disciple needs to make up his mind that this way of criticism is not straight and narrow path that leads to life. No, it's fruitless and it's futile. It's broad and wide that leads to destruction. It's destructive in in their own lives and separating them from their own friends. When the disciple chooses to to criticize or be tempted to criticize, he he needs to switch his mind immediately and put his things on the things above. He needs to find things in the person and, and encourage them. You probably notice that negative people rarely have many people clustered around them. They, they really kind of pull away. They just know sometimes I, I, they're the next target. Fact is, we should never repeat even criticism of someone else. Because then we fall into that, that rut of being a gossip. And pretty soon we're criticizing just like. We're criticizing the critical Now, there is a a place for constructive criticism, but it's only spoken to the person that concerns. First, we take the log out of our eye before we take the speck. We we come to them in love. We don't gossip. We don't tell anybody else. And we pray. And they know that you come with a pure heart, that you want the best for them. Well, the Pharisees, they were critical. Critical of the very people that Jesus had come to save. What I like is with the Lord, there is no discrimination, no prejudice, no partiality, no favorism. The call goes out to the whole world. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. For the whole world. No one is beyond the grace of God unless they choose not the grace of God. The only requirement is that the person simply comes to the Messiah, comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. While the disciple will be criticized, we must remember we are not to be criticizing and critical and judgmental of others. Acts 4.13 says this, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained, they were amazed. And began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. See, the disciple, our lives just stand out. We we may not be educated. Some may and some may not. 
But what's important is that when you're walking with Jesus, you're following his example, you become like him, and the world should see Jesus in us. It is just as, as much as the Christian duty to avoid taking offense and avoiding, again, critical things. We just, and they were in a critical situation, but they also recognized how they handled it. How will you handle the situation where this critical? Will they see Jesus in you? They would never saw that if the, the apostles or disciples at that time simply were critical of them, lashing back at them justify if you do the right thing you know that god's calling you the best thing you can do is just keep putting your hand in the plow and pushing forward and letting god vindicate you when the time comes see the disciple must remember his calling he's an ambassador he's been given the ministry of reconciliation doesn't fit with criticism. What it fits is following in the footsteps of Jesus, ministering where Jesus ministered just how Jesus did. So the disciple must remember his calling, must walk in those footsteps. He needs to watch and listen, do the things that Jesus did, just as you see in the scripture. And that's true for you and me today. Now in verse 11 it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to disciples, why does your teacher eating with the tax collectors? In verse 12, it says, and when Jesus heard this, what I just read, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now that's Hosea 6, 6. The King James is going to use the word uh, mercy instead of compassion, but it's the same. Jesus has another ministry. He desires this, this mercy or compassion, not, not sacrifice. Now, he makes it clear who he's come to minister to, not the healthy. See, again, the Pharisees saw themselves as healthy, pure, righteous, and just, the keepers of the law. And as long as a person's in that place, they will never come to know Jesus Christ. Their self-righteousness will prevent them from understanding who he is, what he's done, and what he wants to do in their lives. Now, Matthew, though, a disciple now, Matthew was testifying that he, the sinner, and his sinful friends, they were spiritually sick. And what Jesus is talking about is a spiritual picture, not a physical picture. Spiritually, they were sick. They needed salvation. They needed to be cleansed and healed and touched. And that's what Jesus was doing. They needed a touch of his mercy. They needed to be touched by the Savior. And they believed that Jesus had come to do that that very thing. Now Jesus next warns again the, this religious person, those who think they're more acceptable to God than others. Well, Jesus deals with these religious people who are not believers at this point. Jesus warns them that he came for the spiritually sick. 
And they were sick, but they didn't know. He had come to earth for the same purpose that a physician would enter a home and help a sick person. However, just like the physician, he could only minister to the the sick who call him to come into their homes, to come into their life and heal them. Some people you've probably known that have been sick and they don't want to call a doctor. A doctor can't do anything. Jesus says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come. Just call upon his name. He's waiting. So Jesus is warning them that he came to have mercy and not to lead people to make sacrifices. Jesus wants to restore that broken fellowship. He's what the Bible talks about, that kinsman redeemer for the book of Ruth. He wants to bring people back into that fellowship. And their actions are really dividing people. The blind leading the blind. What he wants is not sacrifices of of righteousness, but he wants lives that need mercy. Sacrifices offered in righteous worship, they come to nothing. He came to show and bestow mercy upon the sinners. And that's only when a person knows they're a sinner in need of a Savior and they desire that mercy and that acceptance. Well, Jesus warns them. He came again to call sinners to repentance. If the person doesn't think he needs changing, he doesn't need repentance, Jesus simply can't help him. The disciple, though, he comes like a child, he humbles himself, He shows respect and honor to those. He allows them to make their own choices. He's not critical of them, not fault-finding of them. When they treat him horribly, they heap coals on their head, which speaks of a blessing, and win them by love so often. But if a person knows that they're a sinner... And they come to Jesus, their life changes. And they find repentance and they find peace. And they find grace in a time of need. So again, the scripture says it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. Pharisees, again, healthy and pure and whole. After all, they observed the law, they were keepers of the law. But do we have a relationship with Jesus? Do we hear him speak? The self-righteous person is is much like the the person in Laodicea who was blind, miserable, and needed salvation. They don't know they need salvation. They're neither hot or cold. And Jesus said, because you're neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. There was no evidence of, of salvation in their life. The critics thought they knew so much about the law. But Jesus again spoke those words from Hosea, chapter 6, 6. And I'm reading the King James. 
And this is what God's heart is. It says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The disciple himself should desire knowing that God desires this mercy and not sacrifice. We should be the ones extending the mercy. Most merciful people. Not laying burdens upon people, but just bringing them to Jesus. When they blow it, extend the mercy. Bring them into the presence of Jesus. Now, this sacrifice really summarizes all the observance of rituals, the traditions. Jesus wants the heart. The Pharisees tended to focus on that outward, the ritual, the ceremonial things of the law. But Jesus told them they neglected the more important things of the law, the inward, the eternal, the moral precepts. When a person does that, they end up becoming very harsh and judgmental and self-righteous and scornful of others. This should never be a part of really a disciple's life. The disciple, like Jesus, will see people in the right time come to the Lord. Again, it's repeated in Matthew 12, 7. We'll see it, you know, as we get there. It says, but but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. This is really the heart of God. This is something that God wants to instill in every one of his disciples, a compassionate, merciful heart. And you can't sit on the fence. You're either compassionate and merciful heart, or you've got a heart that's hardening and judgmental and, and cynical. Now, Jesus was never blind to the faults of the sinners. When he dined with them, he knew their lifestyle. But he wanted to reach them. He wanted to be available to them. He wanted them to know that if they just followed him and believed him, they would find acceptance in him. They would find salvation in him, peace and love and mercy. In reality, the Pharisees had really no right to exercise judgment because they were sinners just like them. And again, Matthew 20, verse 28, reminds us, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is going to lay his life down for the Pharisees as much as those that they called sinners, for the whole world. As a disciple of Christ, we should have that same compassionate heart, willing to lay down our life and there's no greater love than one who lay down his life for another. As we move to verse 14, we see that Jesus is, is questioned about fasting. Verse 14 says this, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now, first of all, by this time, these are the disciples of John the Baptist. Okay. John the Baptist is probably in prison at this point. His disciples come to Jesus with this problem. See, they themselves fasted often and fasted, if if you remember, the diet of John the Baptist. They lived that simple life. 
But it wasn't the heart thing. First, Jesus, they said, why don't you fast? Well, first of all, Jesus did fast, but not by their standards. He never fasted to be seen. He never taught anybody to to fast to be seen. In fact, they were to prepare themselves so the, the world wouldn't know they're fasting. First in Matthew 4, 2, when Jesus was led in the wilderness by the Spirit, it says this, and after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And then his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in Matthew 6, verse 16 and 18, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their parents so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but your Father who is in secret, your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. See, fasting was a, a thing of mourning, mourning over a death, mourning over sin. There were certain fasts that were required, but very, very few. Jesus never teaches that fasting was bad. But it wasn't the time to fast. May you be led by the Lord. Do it not to be seen by people, but by the Lord. When you want to hear the Lord clearly... The spiritual fasting is when we want to die to ourselves, our own desires. We want to hear clearly from God. We want to honor God. We want to glorify Him. That's the key. That's what's important. The Lord simply answered with an illustration. Let me show you. In verse 15, Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast. So the Lord uses this illustration. Now Jesus' response to John's disciples was the fasting while he, the bridegroom, the guest of honor, was present with them. It it wasn't the time to fast. See, he was the bridegroom. His disciples were the wedding guests. This was a time of celebration, not mourning. But there's a time that the bridegroom would be taken away. And it went over their head because what he's talking about is when he would be going to the cross and he would die for the sins of the world. They would mourn. They would grieve. Mark 2.20 says this, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they will fast on that day. The disciples at that point won't fully understand what is happening, even though he will warn them three times. But they would mourn, they would grieve, they would fast. The illusion here is just this crushing sorrow at the crucifixion and when he's being buried. You can see the same theme through the the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Hosea 2 and Ephesians talks about it. Revelation talks about Real fasting takes place when there's a real occasion for it. Well, Jesus' words do not, again, 
command fasting and they don't disapprove them. There's just a time. There's a place. It's not a ritual that has to be followed and you're going to find good favor. It's something that your heart is affected. It's something that you're going before God. You're going to deny yourself because you want to hear. You need to hear from God clearly. We've turned it into a ritual, something magic. If we do this, then we'll get what we want from God. God knows our motive. Disciple follows Jesus. He will trust God to lead him and guide him, whether it be still waters or troubled waters. The question is raised by John's disciples further prompted Jesus to to point out that that John was, it marked the end of of one dispensation and and a new dispensation, this age of grace is, is about to happen when he says in verse 16, but no one puts a patch on an unshrunk cloth of an old garment. The patch pulls away from the garment, the worst terror results. Nor do people put New wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins would burst. The wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine and fresh wineskins, and, and both are preserved. The question is, is, is here is, is Jesus is giving a big picture. This dispensation that they're in is coming to an end. This dispensation of grace is, is coming. Jesus is the, the promised one, the anointed one that was, it was promised. And the ministry is going to be different. Everything is, is going to be different. You, you cannot patch these old traditional practices of, of righteousness within the Judaism. There needed to be something new and fresh. That's why you need a new wineskins. It's changing. But sometimes people don't want change. So the new kingdom of Jesus is too new, too big for the old structure. They wouldn't allow it. The system wouldn't allow it. And this is why there's a, a new covenant. The law couldn't make a, a, a person good. This is why the new covenant, the new dispensation would, would come. And it was going over their head. But Jesus uses an illustration to teach these old farms, these old rituals, ceremonial fasting, practiced by the Pharisees and John Baptist disciples. It doesn't cut it. It won't work. See, in Colossians 2, verse 17, it says this, Things which were mere shadows of what was to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. This new dispensation, truth and grace came by Jesus Christ. Everything was new. The old system would no longer work. But yet there are many today going back to the old system thinking, God's not pleased unless I go back. God's pleased when you come to his son. 
God's pleased when you become a disciple and you follow him and he is your example and you want to walk as he walks and speak as he speaks and touch those that he touched. That you had this compassionate, merciful heart reaching and touching a lost world. See, in verse 13, we saw Jesus said to them, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. These things aren't going to work. They haven't worked. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus come with a a broken heart. We need to pray that God break our hearts where your heart is broken. Give us this merciful heart, compassionate heart, to reach out and get out of our comfort zones, not to hang on to traditions. Just follow Jesus. Be a child of God. That's what a disciple is. Wanting to grow in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, tonight. For the many examples we find in your scripture, we see you as this loving God, this merciful God, this gracious God. God, how we want to be that same way. God, have your way in our hearts tonight. Give us opportunities to to bring your mercy to this lost world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.